Let's begin this morning with just a moment of quiet, if we can. I'm going to ask you to just simply close your eyes, if you would. Let your hands just rest on your knees. Take a deep breath. Let it out slowly. Take another breath. Let it out slowly. As you breathe, just imagine breathing in everything that's good. Everything that's good and wise and beautiful and lovely. As you exhale, you're breathing out everything that is toxic, everything that is poisonous to your body, to your soul. Just breathe in right now in the presence of God and just sit in in silence just for a moment. God, this morning in in this place, in the presence of your people, in your presence, God, help our hearts to be at rest, to find their rest in you. And Lord, as you speak to us through your word this morning, we pray, God, that you would bring each of us increasingly to a place of surrender, of being yielded to you, open to you. God, that we might be more like you, the people in whose image you have made us. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Last week I stated that Christianity's track record with greed and power has not been a good thing. And it can be seen not only in ancient times, but right up to to the present time. There's something wrong, as I said last week, when the church is known not for its love and good deeds, but known instead for its partisanship and, and uh, culture wars and its exclusion of people. And add to that abuses of power and injustices that stem from protecting institutions. I believe that Christianity is at a crossroads. I asked the question last week, how did we get here? How did we get here, and where do we go from here? And how do we keep our own lives free of these things and truly experience a a life-transforming walk with Jesus? Once again, we're going to hear Jeremiah. We're going to direct our attention there. Read that together. If we, well, maybe it's maybe we won't. It's on the cover of your bulletin. If it doesn't go up right away, so let's read that together again. That verse from Jeremiah six sixteen. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. What is that ancient path? What is, the, what is the good way? How do we recognize when the church or Christianity or even ourselves are off track? How do we guard against um, being unwittingly influenced by culture, society, politics, and all the other things that weigh on us, especially when it's, it's our own particular cultural bent or political biases? 
How do we stay on the path where God's Word can speak into our lives, where the Holy Spirit continues to guide and teach us, and where Jesus is still our rabbi? How do we have a life-transforming walk with Jesus? We can't go back, and in most cases, we wouldn't want to. But how do we take the lessons from the past, bring them into the present, as we discern a path forward for ourselves, for ourselves as individuals, for us as a church, for Christianity as a whole? Initially, let me just sort of do a recap. Initially, Christians were known simply as the way. They were following the simple way of Jesus. Despite severe persecution for 300 years, Christianity not only survived, it thrived. Christianity was a movement that was on the, on the bottom, it was on the edge of the empire, and yet, it, 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 despite the fact that it had no position or power or prestige, it was transforming individuals and society. And then in 313, the emperor Constantine legalized Christianity. By 380, Christianity had become the official religion of the Roman Empire. The church went from being on the bottom to being on the top, from being persecuted to possessing power and prestige. And Christians went from meeting secretly in the catacombs to worshiping openly in the public buildings and the basilicas. And many were concerned as they watched this this thing happening. Many Christians were concerned that the church was uh, becoming adrift and compromised by culture and state, corrupted by power and greed. And they realized how easy it was, not only for the church, even for themselves, to lose oneself in the entanglements and the influences of society. And so they determined to pursue God in a radical way. Men and women retreated to the outskirts of the cities and into the deserts of Palestine, Syria, and Egypt. They became known as the desert fathers and mothers. They sought to find a different way of being Christian in the world. They were not naive, by the way, to to, to think that Uh, just because they were going off to the desert to live wouldn't mean that they wouldn't still be facing temptations. You know the saying, wherever you go, there you are. They went to the desert to deal with the self, with with anxiousness and the constant need for for, uh, earthly supports and props. The The desert doesn't care one whit about who you are. And it quickly strips you of ego, of false self, and false securities. And the desert wasn't just a place, a physical location, but a type of Christian experience. It was a journey, an inner journey of the heart. It was an inner journey of abandonment, of stripping away, a place of encounter and discovery, of identity and vocation, and of testing and preparation of the heart so that God could be yielded to, the, to, to God, so that the life of God would, would be revealed and manifested in individuals. Now, Jesus spent time in the desert before he began his ministry. And one might argue that he continued that desert experience throughout his, throughout his uh, public ministry when he practiced solitude and silence and prayer. Our scripture this morning is uh, Luke chapter 4. I invite you to turn there with me if you'd like, page 995 in the Pew Bible, page 995, Luke chapter 4, the first 13 verses. This account comes right on the heels of Jesus' baptism, which is sort of marks, Jesus' baptism marks the beginning of his public ministry. 
And immediately upon being baptized, Jesus is sent into the wilderness, into the desert. I'm reading chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. The desert may be free from some distractions, but as in the case of Jesus, there are some very real temptations that come as well. The desert has a way of stripping away ego and false self and pretense and dependence on earthly things. Jesus faces off with the devil, and in resisting those temptations, Jesus is demonstrating his commitment, his dedication to the plan and the purposes of his Father, to the will and the call that his Father had placed on his life. There's a kind of desert tradition that runs all through Scripture, really, if you're familiar with the story, the big God story, if you will, Um, probably starting with, I'm assuming it even happened before Moses, but Moses spent 40 years in the desert of Midian before he led God's people. And then Israel spent 40 years wandering in the desert until God brought them into the promised land. David spent years in the desert before he became king of Israel. Many of the prophets, including Jeremiah, spent time in the desert. In fact, there was a school of the prophets in the desert. And then there's the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist, who was actually a relative of Jesus. John was a quirky and fiery prophet who pointed people to Jesus. He was the voice of one calling in the desert. And we know that Jesus spent 40 days and nights in the desert, but we don't know anything about the 18 years that led up to that point, from the point of which Jesus was 12 years old until he was... 30 years old, the beginning of his ministry, we know nothing, nothing. There's an assumption that Jesus became a carpenter like his father, Joseph. But there's also a tradition that Jesus may have spent many years in the desert like his cousin or second cousin, John. Jesus may have spent many years himself in the desert, even prior to what we read in the text this morning. And Jesus' life has all the marks, whether he did or didn't, his life has all the marks of someone who's been in the desert. A strong sense of self and a maturity that is evidenced by deep wisdom and a radical love. 
It wasn't a terrible surprise, I suppose, when early Christians retreated to the desert to remove themselves from the allures and entanglements of society and the corrupting influences of power and prestige. These were people who wanted to walk in the simple way of Jesus. They sought a life-transforming walk with Jesus. That doesn't mean that those who stayed in the cities or those who stayed in the, I don't even know what to call it at this point, the, the legal church, the institutional church, it doesn't mean that they weren't also desirous of the same things. In fact, there were some anecdotal stories of, of the desert fathers encountering and interacting with the bishops or the pastors in the state church, if you will. And there was a, there was a sense of, uh, of mutual uh, respect and recognition of faith and practices and, and, the different, and the different paths that they had chosen to walk in following Jesus. And they didn't see themselves as being part of, of, of a different faith or a different movement, but of one universal church, one in Christ. That's interesting to keep in mind. The men and women who retreated to the desert were hermits. They were ascetics and monks. They were the forerunners and founders of monastic communities in Celtic Christianity. There are some fascinating stories about them and the crazy things that they did. You've heard of extreme sports. Well, these men and women were into extreme spirituality. One of them is named Simeon, who is known as Saint Simeon Stylites. Uh, I, I tried to find the, the... I remember... I'm like remembering from my college and seminary days. I think it was Simeon. Uh, if it wasn't him, it was another, another desert father who went out into the desert and planted himself in the ground like a carrot. I said extreme spirituality. You know, wanting to, to, to you know, be free of any, anything. I don't know that I'd feel like I was free of anything if I was buried in the ground like a carrot. But anyway, St. Saint Simeon, Saint, uh, Simeon, he went out to the desert and he... Um, well, let me say this. He... He became a Christian at age 13, and by age 16, he had already made a decision to live uh, the life of an ascetic, basically of you know, living alone out in the desert at age 16. So he went out there, and he lived for a while on top of a nine-foot pole. I told you, extreme spirituality. Well, that pole must not have been tall enough because he moved to another pole that was a tower that was um, uh, more than 50 feet. It was between 50, I read different accounts, between 50 and 80 feet in height. So, you know, twice the height of this, of this uh, sanctuary. And he went up there and he lived on a platform that was a meter square with a baluster, a railing around it. And he was up there for 37 years, exposed to summer and winter. Well, he became quite a spectacle. I mean, people came out to see him. Sightseers would come out to see him. But people also came out to him looking for, for guidance, looking for counsel, looking for wisdom, asking, looking for healing, looking for him to pray for them. And th- thousands of people would make a hermitage, if you will, or pilgrimage to, to see St. Simeon on this tower. And then there's another man by the name of Anthony, a contemporary and friend of, of Simeon. Anthony grew up in a wealthy Egyptian family. He was well-educated. Uh, he grew up in a Christian home. His parents were Christians, believers. And then one Sunday, Anthony heard the story of the rich young ruler to whom Jesus said, go sell all of your possessions, give it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Well, Anthony felt God speaking directly to his heart. Unlike the rich young ruler who went away sad, Anthony responded to Jesus in faith. He chose the simple way of Jesus. He actually did what Jesus said. 
And selling his possessions, Anthony went off into the solitude of the Egyptian desert, not for a few days or a few weeks, but for 20 years alone in the desert. He renounced all possessions to learn detachment. He renounced all speech to learn compassion. He renounced activity in order to learn prayer. And in the desert, Anthony both discovered God and did intense battle with the devil, like Jesus had. When Anthony emerged from his solitude after those 20 years, people recognized in him the qualities of a very whole human being, an authentic, healthy man, whole in body and mind and in soul. There was something uniquely different about him as a result of his desert experience and being with God in the solitude. And from there, God catapulted him into one of the most remarkable ministries of that day. He preached the gospel to rich and poor. He performed healings and other miracles. The emperor, Constantine, uh, counseled with him, or he, he, he sought Anthony's counsel. And he served tirelessly in prisons and among the poor. He was a kind of fourth century Mother Teresa with perhaps even greater impact. And then in his old age, Anthony went back into the desert. He retired to an even deeper solitude to be totally absorbed in direct communication with God. He died in the year 356 at the age of 106 years old. There are some equally inspiring stories of desert mothers who, like their male counterparts, sold their possessions, left their lives of privilege behind to live in the desert in poverty. Many of them uh, caring for the poor. Uh, Many of them lived in communities uh, with one another. Uh, There was even um, at one point, there's one ancient resource that notes that at one point there were 3,000 desert mothers. We're not talking about just a few people who did this. We're talking about thousands of men and women who went out to the desert to experience God, to live out their Christianity in this way. There's even a desert mother in Alexandria named Melania who was of great means and who built a convent. Well, we aren't likely to retreat to a literal or physical uh, desert, nor are we likely to sell our possessions and enter a monastery, though some may, and we may even wonder why more don't. You probably think of monasteries as a decidedly Catholic thing, but you would be wrong. The monastic tradition can be found throughout Christian history, even predating Christianity to Judaism. It was monastics who largely preserved Christianity and learning during the Dark Ages. Monastic communities can be found among early Christians uh, within the traditions of the Roman Catholic as well as the Greek Orthodox churches. And while not terribly common, there are some Anglican and Protestant uh, monasteries as well. And there's a new monastic movement in our own day. In Philadelphia, one example of that is an intentional Christian community in Philadelphia known as the Simple Way. It is headed by Shane Claiborne and others. They are the presence of Christ in one of the poorest areas of Philadelphia. Every now and then I I find myself in conversation with people, sometimes here at Zion, people in the community, other places, people who at least recognize the value of, if not desiring for themselves, to live in intentional Christian communities. I think of First House, our men's recovery ministry that we uh, did for a while here at Zion. That was an attempt at an intentional Christian community. 
for a particular demographic. And then there's been talk of purchasing a home, at least one person I've had that conversation with here, purchasing a home uh, where there can be some intentional Christian community for students at JCC. There was a group here at Zion that for a time was talking about communal living and purchasing a large home uh, in, uh, and being a presence in some of the more challenged areas of Jamestown. I know of young couples and singles who have done that in Detroit. Some of you may be familiar as well with the Jesus People USA, a large Christian communal living place in Chicago, which is part of our denomination. So I guess in some way you could say we sort of have a monastery too, or at least an intentional Christian community. Living in a monastery or a Christian communal experience isn't the same thing, I suppose, as retreating to the desert being alone. But those communities were formed by people who did retreat to the desert, who were alone with God and listening. Communities and ministries grew up around them because these, they saw these men and women as people who possessed wisdom and love, love for God, love for neighbor, and love for God's creation. Perhaps it's a reminder that we can't stay in the desert in solitude, that we also need to live in community and to be in Christ and see Christ in one another and in our neighbors and especially those in need. One of the desert mothers, Theodora, said that there needed to be a moderation, a balance between solitude and community, a balance between work and rest or Sabbath. Here's the takeaway for us. I I, I want to pause just for a second, because at this point, I'm like thinking, even as I'm hearing my own words, yeah, who's going to go live in the desert? Who's going to sell their house this next week, give up all their possessions, and go live and work among the poor? And here's the question. Why isn't that happening? Why isn't that happening in some form or fashion? And And I don't say that to guilt any of us. I just say that to say, how captivated we are by our lives and our stuff and our positions and our privilege that we hang on to that stuff while at the same time wanting to hang on to Jesus. And I think, you know, what did Jesus say? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What's, What's the one thing needful? So perhaps this is a takeaway. The desert fathers and mothers we're attempting to get at something that I think is sorely needed in our own day. They wanted an authentic relationship with God, which, listen, requires solitude, contemplation, silence, as well as the rhythms and practices of prayer, meditation, service, rest, and community. In our consumerist culture, it's hard to let go of things. Hard to live a simple life, a generous life. And uh, many of our lives are filled with so much noise and activity that it is hard to be still, to be silent, to be contemplative. A couple weeks ago, I found myself, I guess for lack of a better description, I felt like I was bombarded by a broken world and my soul was weary. I was tired and I was empty and I could tell that I was not in a good place. And the way that I could tell that I was not in a good place was not only the inner angst in me, but also the way that I found myself relating to the people around me. 
having a hard time loving. And I had allowed busyness and distractions to invade my quiet times, and I was empty. My tanks were on E. And so I decided to take a day away to retreat. I don't know where the nearest desert is, but I went out to Presque Isle for a day-long Sabbath. And I drove out to Westfield, and I took, I took five all along the coast of Lake Erie. And by the time I got there, I had slowed down enough that I was ready to be with God, wanting to be with God. And I found a spot where I was alone and surrounded by God's good creation, and I sat on a picnic table and read. And then I set my book aside, and I journaled. I journaled for a long time. I just I just allowing myself to just pour out whatever I needed to pour out. In fact, I, I started by asking the question that God asked our first parents. Where are you? Where are you? And so I asked the question, where am I? And I started journaling. And then I asked myself again, where am I? Wrote some more. When I was done writing, I asked the question again, where am I? I asked myself that question eight times until nothing more came. And then I continued to journal a little bit more, and then I set the journal aside, and then I was just still, just quiet, content in God's presence. I didn't have to think about anything. I didn't have to say anything. I didn't have to pray anything. I didn't have to do anything. I was simply being with God in His presence and aware that I was in his presence. And I resisted the temptation as much as I could to get up and get on with my day, to do something productive. My only assignment, my only desire, my only goal was simply to be with God, quiet and still, and allow him to replenish my tanks. St. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, said, Our hearts are restless, O God, until they find their rest in you. When you think about how you live your life from day to day, is there a restlessness there? Our hearts are restless, O God, until they find their rest in you. Or as Jeremiah said, walk, walk in the good way, and you will find rest for your souls. Here's the thing, I I cannot expect to have a life-transforming walk with Jesus if I don't take care of my soul. If I'm not regularly with God in solitude, in stillness, in silence, as well as in prayer and listening and reading and meditating. apart Apart from these, I have nothing to give. In fact, eventually, if I don't pay attention to those things, if I don't practice those things, I end up serving and giving out of an empty tank an empty well. I have a book by Eugene Peterson, uh, who's well known for worship and other writings in the church. He wrote a book called The Contemplative Pastor, and in that book, one of the lines that I remember well in the book, he says, run from a busy pastor. Run from a busy pastor. There are many of you who, I want to say, I'm not busy. I am busy. I have plenty to, I have plenty to fill my days but I also am trying and attempting to and fairly successful at uh, carving out time, the space that I need to take care of myself because this busy pastor won't last long if I'm also not in solitude, in silence, alone with God. 
And whether you're a pastor or a person in the pew, it's what we all need. We need to be in places of quiet and solitude and prayer and meditation to allow God's Word to speak into our lives, to allow the Holy Spirit to continue to guide us and teach us and to allow Jesus to continue to be our rabbi. This is the ancient path to become like Jesus. We won't have health as a church or as individuals if we aren't retreating to the desert. So learn from Jesus, from John the Baptist, from the desert desert fathers and mothers, the importance of solitude and silence and listening and just being with God. And from that place, God will speak. God will speak and act and invite us to join Him. But first, we need to be alone with Him. I'm going to invite you again. Close your eyes. And just breathe. Let go of anything that's in your heart or mind right now. If you're aware of anything right now, be aware of a restlessness inside of you that wants to be still. Lord, in order to be with you, truly with you, we need you to slow us down, to show us, Lord, how to create deserts in the midst of our full active lives. Cleanse us from the pressures, illusions, and pretense that confronts us each day so that our lives may serve as a gift to those around us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.